Hey everybody, come on over here. It's the Northern Miner Podcast. Welcome to episode 97 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. And uh, we've got a pretty good show for you lined up today. Uh, What do we have here? We have Anthony Vaccaro is dropping by. He's going to tell us about the Canadian Mining Symposium that the Northern Miner is helping organize in uh, London uh, in April. We've got Richard Corisa. He's uh, coming in for a Rick's Picks episode. And we're going to uh, contact by Skype Adrian Pocabelli. He's our online editor in Berlin. And uh, it's a bit of a Rosa, Rosabella Palooza, if I can use that word. I was at the uh, Rosabella mine uh, that I'm Gold runs in uh, Suriname uh, last fall and put together a um, quite in-depth story about the mine. It's a terrific turnaround story. So uh, what we did was we had a Skype session with the mine manager Suresh Calithil and the COO of I Am Gold, Gordon Stothert and Craig McDougall uh, last week, and uh, we'll get a full uh, update. And you know, we, we keep the specifics of the project in that article, but I'm kind of asking them more more broad questions uh, that would be in, of interest to the whole industry with this turnaround story. Now, let's begin by thanking our sponsors. Uh, number one, our longtime sponsor is the Yukon Mining Alliance. Those are uh, 17 companies exploring up in the Yukon. And we have a bit of news from a couple of members of the team there. Uh, Fireweed Zinc, they're uh, just signed two option agreements to buy two large claim blocks adjacent to the McMillan Pass project in the Yukon, uh, dealing with Constantine Metal and uh, Golden Ridge. And Western Copper and Gold uh, just filed its uh, annual statement. It, it ends uh, the year with $4 million in cash, and uh, it spent $1.9 million last year. And it's uh, focused on permitting and engineering its casino copper project. And our second sponsor is the Grosso Group out of Vancouver, headed up by Joe Grosso. Those are three companies, Golden Arrow Resources, Argentina Lithium and Energy, and Blue Sky Uranium. A lot of them are focused in and around Argentina. And Golden Arrow has just started drilling its Antofaya Silver Gold Base Metal Project in Catamarca province of Argentina. That's a 3,000-meter program. And Argentina Lithium and Energy has also started drilling at its 100% controlled Inca Hueci Lithium Brine Project, also in Catamarca. And our third sponsor this episode is the SRK, and they are the Mining Minute sponsor, so we'll be hearing from them shortly. And the biggest news of the week, this only came out about 50 minutes ago, uh, so I'm sure by the time you hear this podcast, there'll be tons of coverage all over uh, Canadian and global media. But uh, the founder of Barrett Gold, Peter Monk, passed away today, uh, March 28th, at the age of 90. He was uh, born in Budapest and um, famously uh, escaped the Nazis with his family and eventually made his way to Toronto at 20 and uh, studied engineering at University of Toronto and founded that Claritone uh, speaker company, and uh, it was, I think, 83, he founded Barrick, and of course, we all know the story of Barrick, fantastic company, and he's always been a strong advocate of uh, Canadian companies, and um, well, the success of Barrick speaks for itself, and uh, he's also a major benefactor across Canada. He's given away uh, almost $300 million in his lifetime uh, especially to the Toronto General Hospital, where he founded the uh, cardiac unit. And he gave, uh, I believe, $47 million to the University of Toronto to their international affairs uh, school there. So our condolences to the Monk family and the Barrick family.
And let's jump into a quick review of the commodity prices. We've got gold is at 1326. It's down 20 bucks uh, today, <laughs> uh, dropping quite steadily there. And the rest of the precious metals: uh, silver 1630, platinum 938, palladium 965. The rest of the precious metals are kind of going sideways lately. And over in the base metals, at least on the per pound basis, I know explorers tend to talk about per pound where the producers and traders talk about tonnage uh, prices, but uh, a lot of the major uh, benchmarks have been breached there. On the low end, uh, copper dropped below $3 a pound uh, in the last little while. It's now at two ninety-five. Nickel dropped through $6. It's now five ninety-four. Zinc dropped below $1.50. It's now $1.49. And lead is at a dollar ten, and it's been re- bouncing recently off a dollar six, but still holding above a dollar. And of course, cobalt is still a very popular metal uh, among traders and speculators these days. And I thought Marin Katusa had a nice tweet here, a bit of a warning for speculators. Uh, he notes that cobalt is up twenty six percent year to date, and he has a warning for all cobalt speculators. Number one. Avoid low-grade nickel projects with byproduct cobalt being spun as nickel equivalent. And number two warning is that Russian mining modernization effect. The Norilsk cobalt production will increase and come online very quickly and very cheaply. He says don't underestimate the Russians. In the world of uranium, there's been a bit of good news, even if the price of uranium oxide uh, on the spot market hasn't moved, but the uh, Trump administration in the U.S. has suspended sales from its uranium oxide stockpile for the rest of the fiscal year. This program has been going on at least for 10 years, and they've been using the money from these sales, which were um, about 4 million pounds a year, U308. Uh, this had been used to raise money to put towards the environmental cleanup of the large uh, Portsmouth gaseous diffusion uranium enrichment facility in Piketon, Ohio. And this latest suspension, that'll remove 1.6 million pounds U308 equivalent from the market for the next six months. More to the point, uh, Energy Secretary Rick Perry says he'd like to just end this program entirely and just fund the cleanup from the normal budget processes. So this was all in the omnibus bill that was passed uh, last week. The group called the Uranium Producers of America, there's, I think there's about eight or so companies in that, long lobbied against this selling from the DOE stockpile, and they noted that the 1.6 million pounds of uranium oxide that will be kept off the market is more uranium than the entire domestic industry produced in 2017. At a time when our industry is providing less than 2% of the fuel needed to power our domestic nuclear reactors, halting DOE uranium transfers is the right policy. So uh, that's a bit of good news on the supply side for uranium producers, especially in the U.S. Uh, Over in Japan, there's been two new reactors have started up. Things have been kind of frozen there since the Fukushima disaster in 2011. So there have been, I believe, uh, five. It's still been operating lately, and now two more back online. And there was a court case trying to prevent a new nuclear reactor from being built, and that was lost. So that one will be built. So Japan is slowly coming back online as a uh, consumer of uh, uranium through their um, domestic power production. And now we're here with the publisher of the Northern Miner Group, Anthony Vaccaro. Anthony's very busy. Uh, he's uh, assembling the Canadian Mining Symposium, which the Northern Miner is putting on in London, in Canada House, which is an absolutely beautiful facility, a terrific event. It'll be April 24th, 25th. Uh, last year was our first year, and it was just a, a bang-up event. We had Robert Friedland, Lucas Lundin, David Garofalo, Rob McEwen uh, speaking, apart from uh, some terrific panels. So uh, it was so popular, we're doing it uh, two days this year. So Anthony uh, is putting together the show. So let's ask him, uh, first off, what is the rationale for putting on this thing? Thanks, John. Uh, yeah, as you alluded to, we had a lot of fun last year launching a, a new investment conference that took the Canadian story, the Canadian mining story, to the UK investor. And the the genesis of this idea, I was spending some time over in London at 
the Minds and Money Conference, which a lot of your listeners will be very familiar with. And I had some investors, group, multiple groups of investors approach me as the publisher of the Northern Miner saying they, there was an appetite there. This is about 2014, so still very much a risk-off environment. And the appetite was for someone like the Northern Miner with that independent kind of outlook on the Canadian um, mineral sector uh, to bring over, to do a bit of more of a deep dive on what the investment opportunity was in Canada. As your listeners might be aware, a lot of UK money traditionally flows down to Africa. In 2013 to 2016, those investments uh, weren't going so well. So there was this desire. And in the past, Mines and Money had been doing more of a Canadian focus. They used to have something called Canada Day, which the Northern Miner did participate in. And that had kind of gone away. So there was this appetite to see something about what's going on. So we decided that we would uh, look at possibly doing something very un-Canadian. And that is to brag a little bit about how we have become the international leaders in mining in terms of technology development, in terms of research, in terms of uh, mining executives, capital raisings. We have an amazing story to tell. So that was the, that was the genesis of the idea. We, uh, I talked to, uh, to Robert Freeland, Lucas Lundin, some big names in the industry. They really liked the idea. They uh, volunteered their time to go, go out of their way and go to London to speak at our event. And then we brought some great junior miners and some great explorers along to tell their story straight to the to the London investor. Um, I should mention investors are, it's an invite-only event, so I'm not on here plugging it because no one can really come unless you're a UK investor. And uh, there's not, uh, the sponsorships have all gone extremely well as well. It's been uh, widely embraced. So uh, yeah, just a, you know, just an all-around great, uh, great event last year. And we're looking forward to going at it again this year. And uh, I could just add uh, the kind of spot. Over the two days, we have uh, fireside chats with our, our featured speakers. We have panels, which are excellent, and uh, individual company presentations uh, through the day. And we have, you don't need, really need to leave the building. We have breakfast, lunch, dinner, and it's, it's a high-security building. It's airport-level security. If you pull up, uh, they'll come with mirrors under your car to look for bombs, and you go through airport security. <laughs> Uh, so it's it's a wonderful facility there, and uh, some of the top sponsors we have this year, we have, for instance, the provinces of BC, Ontario, Quebec, uh, the territories of Northwest Territories and the Yukon. We have some big financial players, BMO, the TMX, Pear Tree, PwC, and uh, Anthony, can you just tell us who are the uh, key speakers this year? Yeah, thanks, John. So this year we're humbled to have uh, Pierre Lasson and Ross Beattie, two Canadian Mining Hall of Fame inductees, coming over, as well as uh, Kelvin Dushnitsky, the president of Barrick. There's also uh, there's a few surprise names on some of the panels that we're going to be releasing at the end of the week. So people can go to the Northern Miner website and click on events, and you can see Canadian Mining Symposium. That'll give you a lot more details on what's going on over there. Um, yeah, and we're going to be doing a Lifetime Achievement Award. That'll be announced shortly. I'm not going to give away too much now, but stay tuned for that. There'll be some coverage in the Northern Miner on who is going to be what will be the third recipient of the Northern Miner's Lifetime Achievement Award. And there'll be a bit of a ceremony and a little bit of fun celebration around that in London as well. So, yeah, I think those are all the, the key points, John. Yeah, and... Uh... You know, it's a little bit unusual for us. We're, we're sort of a populist newspaper, but it, it is a limited uh, attendance of 200 people. But the, the great thing about being a media company is we have we're filming the whole thing, we're recording it, we're going to do podcasting. Trish and I will be there, interviewing people, and uh, all this material will be uh, on our website soon. And j- just like last year, you saw with the Canada House uh, presentations, and for instance, our number one podcast we've done. 96 so far. Number one podcast was Robert Friedland's Fireside Chat. Uh, it just went gangbusters as a podcast, accessible for free. So even though this is a limited seating, uh, the content through us will be spread to you know, literally tens of thousands of people. So uh, anyway, it's going to be a fun month. And thanks, Anthony, for telling us all about it. Thank you. We'll return after this short break with Richard Quarisa. Now we're joined for another episode of Rick's Picks. We have uh, our staff writer, Richard Quarisa here. 
How are you doing, Richard? <laughs> I'm good, John. How are you? Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and what have you got for us this week? I have three flaming hot picks for us this week, John. These picks are on fire. Uh, to start things off, we're going to go to the New York Stock Exchange with a company called Goldfields. Uh, last week, shares of Goldfields rose 9.9% to $4.10 US. Now, earlier this month, the company announced that it had formally begun transitioning to contract mining at its Tarqua gold mine in southwestern Ghana. Goldfield says it will continue to manage exploration and processing sides of the business. Tarqua still contains mineral reserves of 6.1 million ounces gold, as well as 9 million ounces gold resources. Goldfields uh, expects mine life will extend until 2031. But really, Goldfields just has a ton of stuff. In January, it sold its polymetallic Arctic Platinum project in northern Finland to a Finnish subsidiary of a private equity fund called CD Capital Natural Resources for around US $40 million in cash and a 2% net smelter return royalty on all metals. Uh, it's also got operations that are producing gold and silver and copper in South America, as well as gold operations in Australia, and a large exploration project in South Africa. So that's just a company that seems like they have a lot going on and is worth keeping an eye on. Huh, very good. I'm, I'm surprised they sold that uh, platinum asset. I think it was in a park or something like that. But uh, it was technically excellent, but uh, always problematic. And uh, number two, what do you got for us? For number two, we're going to the Toronto Stock Exchange with First Quantum. Now, news that the Zambian Revenue Authority believes First Quantum Minerals owes about U.S. $8 billion, that's U.S. $8 billion in import duties, penalties, and interest on consumables and spare parts, sent the miner shares plunging 18%, or $3.83, to $17.36. In a news release, First Quantum said it refutes this assessment, which does not appear to have any discernible basis of calculation and said it will continue working with the ZRA, that's the Zambia Revenue Authority, as it normally does to resolve the issue. Now, Zambia accounts for like 84% of First Quantum's revenue last year, while First Quantum accounted for more than half of Zambia's copper output and is the country's largest individual taxpayer. All that considered, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out and if that dispute continues, how it might affect First Quantum going forward. Boy, uh, Zambia, Tanzania, and South Africa are all becoming uh, very hostile to mining companies. Yeah, uh, things not, are getting crazy. Not sure where it's going. And uh, number three? Number three, we're going to the Venture Exchange for a company called Telson Mining. Telson recently changed its name from Telson Resources to Telson Mining to reflect the fact that they're going into pre-production at its two Mexican projects where it's producing gold and zinc and a bunch of other minerals. The company started pre-production in 2017, and it also announced it had entered into a construction phase recently and wants to be producing at its own mineral processing plant on-site at around 1,000 tons a day by the end of 2018. Very good. And, you know, I think we have time for a bonus round. Do you have a bonus pick? My goodness, I'm so off guard. (laughs) I, I wasn't prepared for this at all, but if I had to pick one... It would probably be a little company called Colorado Resources. Uh, They're a junior that holds gold and copper properties in BC's Golden Triangle, as well as some property in Nevada. Now, the funny thing with this story was last week, the company issued a press release announcing the resignation of one of its directors, Carl Herring, but also calling out its former CEO, Adam Travis, saying... Mr. Travis is disgruntled as well as continuing to demonstrate ignorance of, of corporate governance. The press release goes on to say that Travis had incorrectly referred to Herring as an independent director and that as early as January of 2017, Herring had recognized and expressed deep concern about the serious shortcomings of Mr. Travis. Thank you, Richard. And let's move on to Adrian in Berlin. And we're joined by Adrian Pocabelli. He's our online editor, and he's based in Germany. And uh, Adrian, how are you doing? Very good, Sean. Good good to hear from you. Yeah, well, what we're going to do is uh, check in with Adrian uh, every now and then. And just uh, he he not only maintains our website, but he also does our social media across uh, 
Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, that kind of thing, and keeps an eye on the whole uh, social media scene. So uh, we'll just check in with Adrian on uh, what's going on in the social media world with respect to mining. So what do you got for us uh, this week, Adrian? I have a few different items. Uh, I want to start off, even though it's getting uh, slightly old now, but I still want to touch on it. The, at, at PDAC, uh, we had the, uh, the, bit gold, the Bitcoin gold debate, uh, which I thought was uh, probably the most exciting part uh, event I went to at PDAC. And uh, I thought it was, uh, you know, we had Jeffrey Christian, uh, Rick Rule, and then uh, Josh Crum. Uh, Michael Gokturk, he was from uh, Thank you, Einstein yeah, Exchange. From... Yeah, Jeffrey Christian from CPM Group, Rick Rule, he's with uh, Sprott US Money, and Josh Crum is the uh, co-founder of Gold Money. It was a no-holds-barred uh, debate. It was got almost, I'd say it did get personal, but in, a, I think, a relatively lighthearted way. So anyways, so uh, PDAC live-streamed that, and they got a nice viewership out of that, and uh, so that was nice. Uh, uh, Rick Rule had his good sound bites, as he always did, but I thought Jeffrey Christian was the guy who actually seemed the most learned and uh, he had the most historical knowledge out of the whole thing. I should add, this was live-streamed on Facebook, and it's, uh, we'll provide a link in our uh, show notes. So Roy Seabag uh, replied that he wasn't impressed with the debate, though. Uh, he said it was, uh, uh, yesterday's debate at PDAC Gold versus Bitcoin was painful to watch. Shows even smart people are intellectually corruptible. More than one person on the panel showed a grave misunderstanding of monetary history slash basic principles of why gold has value. So Roy Seabag is the guy who used to run BitGold, and we interviewed him, I think, in 2015, uh, if not 2014, when he had started BitGold with Josh Crum, I believe. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting to get his take because he is coming from the – blockchain community where it meets precious metals and in recent years he sort of uh, joined up with gold money he actually acquired james turk's operation gold money in 2015 and it's kind of funny because on both their social media accounts in their bios they both say that they're founders of gold money uh, go figure uh, generally speaking on the social media's social media uh, particularly twitter we're seeing uh, that the precious metal people, you know, pejoratively called the gold and silver bugs, are starting to get pretty bullish and even hyperbolic, as they like to do, on the prospect uh, on the on precious metals, particularly on the prospect of a trade war between U.S. and China, uh, rising interest rates, and also this idea of underreported inflation, because some people are saying, you know. Inflation is like my phone does cost more than it did a year ago. My computer does cost more than a year ago, even though these are sort of seen as get diminished because uh, or get dismissed because they are seen as because uh, they have more processing power. So you're getting more for your money. So anyway, so this idea of underreported inflation is coming up, which it always has, but it's coming up more strongly now. James Turk is uh, calling for uh an explosion in the silver market. He tweeted out, both gold and silver are turning higher on the cusp of major breakouts. There's a huge head and shoulders bottom being formed in silver. Look for an upside explosion when it eventually hurdles $17.40, which is not that far away. Buy physical, not paper. So the classic head and shoulders uh, technical chart formation. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Uh, those those uh, gold charts, it really looks like $1,400 is coming within the next six, six months or so. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it's, it's funny. If, if I had a nickel for every time I heard the head and shoulders chart, though, I think I'd be doing quite well for myself. Uh, another interesting thing, which is not exactly related to the social media, but it's the podcasting world, so that's kind of... Uh, James Dines has sort of returned after... Uh, a bit of an absence, and he's doing the rounds. And what he's saying is really interesting, as always. I mean, he's controversial, as always. And he's basically looking at, he's getting very bearish on bonds. And he's also saying that because most asset classes are higher, 
now really is the time to, he's also saying now is the time to acquire precious metals, uh, descri- describing them as, quote, flat as a horizon right now. Like they haven't really been doing much for a long time, so he quite likes them. As far as the stock market is concerned, he's basically saying to be patient, but if you really want to go buy defense stocks, uh, sort of uh, uh, he's because of potential for war, and uh, and also he likes weed, uh, marijuana stocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always remember uh, James Dine many many years ago uh, when I he sent his newsletter to us. Uh, they were all the mining stocks, of course, uh, and but there was one. It was uh, this little grocery store out of Austin called Whole Foods, and he like was really bullish on this little company called Whole Foods. And man, was he did he ever make a great call on that one? He sure did. I remember his was actually the first newsletter I ever subscribed to. Uh, and that was in about 2010, I think. And uh, that was right as the rare earth thing was starting. So I sort of lucked out in that market. But then, I, of course, nobody sells at the right time, and you don't know those things. But uh, but that was like he he was the first guy that I ever just decided to throw a few hundred dollars at a newsletter at, which most of my friends thought was kind of crazy. So and he's always just a great speaker. Like he, you know, for he's not always right. I mean, who is? But his insight is original. Like you can tell he's really thinking things through. So and yeah, you get stuff like Whole Foods, you know, way ahead of people. So he deserves a lot of credit for that. Moving on, another sort of trend I'm seeing is this Me Too mining. Uh hashtag Me Too Mining. There's a Twitter account and a Facebook page. Uh the Twitter account was started on February twenty sixth. And yeah, the, the feed is appealing to women to share any abuse they might have experienced working in or around the mining industry. And so they've been sending out a few sort of images that say, you know, tell us your story. We'll report it anonymously. So uh, CBC did a story that sort of reported this. Interestingly, the Twitter feed hasn't had that much action. Like there are a few stories, but not that many. The Facebook page has a few more, though. Uh, so it's something to just watch. Like it's a, as far as a trend is concerned, it, did you get a feeling for the, uh, different kind of stories, sort of, uh, inappropriate approaches at work? Would that be the kind of, uh, thing or anything was, more serious than that? Or a lot of them had to do, I think you, you get the full range, but I think like a lot that I sort of saw were, uh, let's say, I mean, some were even waitresses is like in or around the mining industry. So some would be waitresses, you know, at the bar near the mine that were being harassed, let's say, and they would say their stories. Or you had people who worked in the mine or like relating to the operations of the mine. And then there's some pretty sort of just untoward activity going on. And just like, you know, like that really wouldn't be acceptable in any other, like like here it is in a mining, in an underground mine. So it's, yeah, so you're just like mining camp, and so it's a different context than, say, an office, let's say. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so the, it was the full range, like anywhere from the mine to more of an office-type situation to the bar, you know. So it's, you know, but there aren't a ton of stories, but they've just started. So it's, But right. it's still a month old, so it's hard to say. I mean, they may still need press. Like, I just discovered this recently, so... Right. I, I imagine it's analogous to military uh, situations or, or uh, oil situations, these remote camps. Uh, exactly. And then maybe just boozing downtown in the, the big cities of the financial community would probably, I, I would imagine, would be the two areas of concern. Anyways, people are, some people are fed up with this, so they're trying to do something about it. And finally, uh, we, we've been getting some nice comments from readers. John Davies is one of our most loyal, friendliest Twitter uh, followers. You I may love know his tweets. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad to hear. I think we all love his tweets at the Northern Miner. It's you know, Twitter sort of gets uh, a reputation as being a place of trolls and negativity. And I like John Davies is is running his one man revolution against that. With the, he's probably the most positive Twitter feed I've seen. It's just nothing but. Praise and glory. So anyways, uh, let me just read one of the tweets that he sent us, just reviewing the new print edition of the Northern Miner, and as I have come to expect, brilliant information for the investment mining community. My thanks to John D. Cumming and his team. I strongly urge subscription. 
So, me too. I, many, I, I'm, that's my that's my me too campaign. There you go. Yeah, and he puts a nice big picture of the print edition. So thank you, John. We really appreciate your tweets. Uh, thank you, Adrian. And now we're going to take a little break and be back with a mining minute with SRK Consulting. Now we have our Mining Minute with SRK Consulting. Richard Clarissa caught up with Jeff Parsley at the PDAC, and uh, Jeff is SRK's global chairman and a corporate consultant with more than 35 years of environmental and closure experience in the mining industry. He has worked with legal and policy aspects of mining projects since his early career and has been involved in the management of several abandoned mines in the western United States. He is a regular mine closure and closure costs estimating instructor at in-house workshops conducted for mining companies and U.S. government agencies. And take it away, Richard and Jeff. You worked a lot with mine closure. How important is mine closure and is this still your focus? It continues to be important. If anything, it's actually getting more important in, in the industry and it has for a number of years, well, let's say decades, I guess, at this point. While it's not my only focus, it certainly is my primary focus. And a lot of my international work is directly related to to closure, developing closure plans, helping clients come up with closure strategies as well. It's not something you can do at the end of the mining life cycle. It has to get incorporated very early if you want to do it right. As an industry, we we talked a lot about it in the 90s, but it was probably the mid-2000s when the financial institutions started looking at it very carefully and during the super cycle with all the capital projects going on, the finance industry was requiring companies to look at environmental, social and closure issues and incorporate that thinking into their design. You mentioned that you think it's becoming more important now than ever, why is that? There's a lot of reasons for it. There, there's certainly the whole concept of a social license to operate extends, you know, into the closure process and and what happens on the site post closure. You know, the advent of social media makes it very easy for people to communicate about these things. The industry historically has a lot of legacy issues that came from operations that didn't consider these things. Things that were done maybe a hundred years ago or fifty years ago. And the legacy that we're living with on a lot of those projects is contamination and and abandoned mines that today would just be entirely unacceptable to the general public as well as the regulators, the financial industry, and to corporate standards. And now we enter into the interview portion of the show. This episode, we have with us uh, three high-level executives with I Am Gold, in particular having to do with the Rosabelle Mine in Suriname. Now, I was down there last fall. I had a fantastic trip. And uh, I'm not sure just how widely known this is in the industry, but this is a tremendous turnaround story. This was a mine that three years ago was due to be shut down in 2018. This is a mine that produces around 300,000 ounces of gold a year and uh, high cost, uh, and they just went to town uh, squeezing efficiencies out of every aspect of the whole operation, and uh, they've turned it into I'm Gold's lowest cost operation, amazingly, in just a few years, and with the uh, profitable cost now, it's the AISCs are down below 1,000, well below 1,000, that brought all kinds of new ounces into reserves and resources at the site, so this, they now have uh, well over 10 million ounces in resources there, plus a new deposit uh, just 25 kilometers away with uh, 1.5 million ounces, and that's all saprolite, high-grade ore that can be uh, just thrown in the mill beautifully. So let's take it away to this interview. This is by Skype with uh, Suresh Kalathil. He's the general manager at Rosabelle, and Gordon Stothert. They're both on the line in Suriname via Skype, and we have Craig McDougall. 
He's the vice president, senior vice president of exploration for Iron Gold. Gordon is the COO. So in this interview, the sound is a little off because of the Skype and the distance, but uh, we start with Suresh, and then we move to Gordon, and then Craig uh, comes in, at, of course, talking about the exploration side of things. So let's just uh, start that interview. John, it has, it has been a tremendous journey for Roosevelt, like, like what you rightly pointed out. This was a mine which was uh, to come to a closure with a mine life coming to an end in 2018. We did a lot of operational transformation uh, starting from 2013, 2014, uh, right up to now. Some of the very important things which I would really like to mention is that a very strong focus, a very strong focus on performance. When I tell performance, it's performance across the value chain. Yes. Uh, it's not only improving productivity, it's not only improving uh, operational efficiencies, it's uh, right-sizing of the organization, which we did in 2015, where 10% of the workforce was right-sized. For you to make any operations viable, it's important to understand the internal dynamics in the organization and start working on the unit cost. So mm -hmm. one of the fundamental shift in the philosophy of working was that price of gold is not what you control, but your unit cost of operation you can control. So a strong focus in that. So it was across the different functions. Uh, a few key initiatives I'd really like to mention in this particular transformation process was the initiatives which we took in the mill. Uh, because at that time, 2013, 2014, uh, soft rock was, the, uh, the operations was completely under soft rock. And that's the time when uh, we had to get into harder rock, a lot of operational challenges. So a very important thing what we did was in 2015, we went up with the optimization of the milk uh, throughput. One of the very important things which came up during the entire process was to go in for the secondary crusher. Yes. We uh, installed the secondary crusher at a cost of around 18 to $20 million. And mm -hmm. the effects we see now is tremendous. Uh, what we've seen here, is, especially with, uh, with regards to the outputs, the Mill original design was of around 5.4 million tons per annum. With installing the pebble crusher, the, the flex drive, and the SAG lighter configurations, we are able to bring it up to almost 100% hard rock a throughput of around 7.8 to 8.2 million tons. So that's tremendous transformation. In addition to that, we did a lot of work on the TSF, where the TSF was originally done in-house. Now what we've done is that we have contracted it out at a less unit cost. Yeah. A lot of activity and uh, 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 cost optimization on drill, blast, load, haul, production um, in powder factor, increase in drill yield. So there is a list of activities which we did to get to where it was. It was a high operating cost mine, and in 2017 we brought the cost less than $950 at around 931. It's a tremendous team effort. Uh, people took it uh, really to the heart. And yes. the bottom line is, if you believe you can do it, you can do it. Nothing can stop you. Right, right. I know so many mine turnarounds. It's, it's another company comes in or a new workforce, or a new mining method or something. But, but this was the same core. I mean, you obviously reduced staff and you boosted productivity. But how did you get the uh, mine workers to buy into it and not, not get fatigued, you know, year after year of the, the nagging to get the efficiency? What was the motivation? The, one of the biggest motivation uh, in the entire process was that this is a mine which was coming to an end. Now, it's for us to see that we do everything within our, uh, our, uh, our resources which we have got to survive this mine. Mm -hmm. So it was actually the entire transition or the transformation process was very thoroughly planned. Number yes. one was that we started with the right sizing, telling the, going back to the employees and telling them that, see, we did all these measures and now right sizing is important for carrying this operation forward. Yes. Another very important thing we did was we brought in a Highland uh, initiative. Uh, that was in 2015, where we brought uh, a consultant group, uh, the Highland consultant group, and they had an uh, initiative in place for almost uh, 52 weeks uh, where, we, uh, where we went through the entire optimization process. So this is to bring a cultural shift in the mindset of people rather than going by perceptions and thoughts to more data-driven, number-driven, large reasoning. So And then putting KPIs for each of the value functions and then telling them, okay, this is where we need to get 
to get there, we need to do X, Y, Z things. And to do that, what assistance or support do you require? And then as an entire management team, we sat down together, in fact, hand, uh, did a lot of handholding to take them to that numbers. The biggest motivator in this entire process is making them believe it could be done and getting it done. Right. So that increases the confidence in the, in the employees. Yes, we are not talking something which cannot be done. And time and again, we have demonstrated that in the past three to four years, that when we set up a goal, we set up an objective, we collectively think about the goal, we collectively think about the objective and drive to that objective. In the process, if somebody requires support, we give that support and achieve the objective. And once employees are able to see those objectives, they are really elated, they are really excited. Yeah, and I, I saw, that, I saw that myself on the on site. They're uh, very, very uh, capable workers, and uh, very, very, very proud in their work, and it was quite impressive. Speaking from my perspective, I think uh, at a high level, what what they've been able to do here is uh, one, um, you know, break down the silos between the departments so that everybody's pulling as a team. Yes. Um, make sure that the appropriate thinking is going in so that the mine plan is is appropriately engineered, uh, the operations has a say in what that mine plan is, and then we track how we execute against that plan. I, I think one of the things we tried to communicate when we had everybody on site here in September was there there's no silver bullet. There's no one thing. You've got to do a lot of different things well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's... it's uh, it's it's a million different little improvements that have happened. Yes. Uh, and engaging the workforce is important. Getting the frontline supervisors the tools so they can manage during the shift, rather mm-hmm. than you know catch a lot of uh, catch a lot of crap the day after when the when the manager reads the report. So it's too late by then. The guy in the right. field has to know how he's doing now. Yes. Now, of course, the uh, Rosabelle is an operational story. It's also an exploration story. We could bring Craig in here. Just tell us, uh, you know, Rosabelle is this giant V-shaped uh, on its side with a whole series of deposits, and uh, I'm has been mining these deposits. But there's also the Saramaca, a whole new area that's opened up to the west uh, within trucking distance. Craig, can you just tell us uh, what's, what's happened there? It's, it's an exciting uh, aspect of the whole story. Well, sure. I mean, obviously, you know, the good news with the operation, uh, with them being able to get control and, and re-optimize that whole thing has really provided us the opportunity to provide them with the next chapter, which was uh, the delineation of the Saramaca deposit. We put the first um, resource estimate uh, was disclosed last year, September. Uh, would have been hot off the press when you were at site. And in just less than a year, we had delineated a million ounces in an indicated category, just over uh, 2 grams, 2.2 grams, another half a million ounces uh, in inferred category at about 1.2. And about 60% of that resource is in uh, soft oxide, <coughs> soft oxide and transition material, which is really what the Rosabelle mill is, is thirsty for. And, and that can really um, blend very nicely with their hard rock feed. So that's a real exciting development um, for the operation. Since you were there last September, we've completed another 97 drill holes, uh, almost 25,000 meters of drilling, essentially infilling uh, the deposit going underneath the uh, the preliminary whittle pitch shells that we had. And we continued... Uh, to report very high-grade numbers coming out of that um, examples of 46 uh, meters at a uh, little over 11 grams, kind of within the pit and outside of the pit numbers like uh, 15 meters at 22 uh, grams. So, you know, that has continued to increase our confidence in the resource and expand those resources. Uh, and now, uh, you know, we're at a point where our work on the exploration front is largely done with the deposit. We're handing that over to the mine team. And now we get to step out and really start to look at the uh, the rest of the potential along that Saramaca trend, which will we hope will be equally exciting. Right, and this is going to be brought into production quite quickly, is that right? The Saramaca blend, as it were. According to uh, Gord and, and Suresh, they hope to have it into the mill uh, in 2019. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Second half of 2019, we'll 
we're we're driving towards it. I, I had a great presentation from the uh, the project team here a couple of days ago. Uh, everything's on schedule. They're they're working hard. Um, the goal is in sight, and we're just we're we're tickled pink to be able to to be able to bring this, this these resources into the plan, and and eagerly looking forward to the results of uh, Craig Craig's team's uh, next campaigns and and what else is out there. Right, right. And how, how many ounces are there uh, resources and reserves now in Rosabelle and nearby? It's over 10 on million, is that right? <laughs> yeah, the, on the resource front, as of uh, uh, July to, uh, 2017, we had 11.9 million, and as of 31st right. December, we got 11.8 million resources at 1500 yeah. gold price. Right. right. On the Rosabelle itself, not, on including, the itself, not, not including the resources that, that Craig just talked about at Saramaca. Saramac yeah. is another million, million and a half, and counting. Right, yeah. Right. I wonder how many people realize Roosevelt's a ten million plus deposit now. And uh, you know, the, the original the, it, 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 it's intriguing and it, it, it speaks to hard work. But you know, when they started this this mine, the original resource here was two point six million ounces. Yes. Uh, I think total we've now mined close to four million, mm-hmm. and we've got. Where we just talked about, you know, close to 13 million in resources ahead of us. So, you know, it's, it's you 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 make a mine, you make a mine. Yeah, you could really see that. And you know, I I visited uh, the property, I think in 1998 with the Golden Star when it was just the raw jungle. So okay. My my mind just reeled when I was on the ground seeing the the pits and everything. It was really quite something. And uh, Craig, maybe you could speak generally to the uh, the whole Guyana Shield. What, what's the prospectivity of it, and the, the state of exploration across the different countries there? Well, I mean, the Guyana Shield is uh, highly prospective. I, I think as a piece of crust, uh, the global endowment there is somewhere around 180 million ounces. And if you reconstruct it back to Africa, which it was once joined with, on a combined basis, I mean, it's all similar crust. Um, on a combined basis, you're talking almost uh, 500 million ounces. So it really is a prospective um, part of the crust to be working. And as you know, we're active uh, both in the Guyana Shield and across the uh, the ocean in, in West Africa. So we're very at home with that that geology. It's a great place to be looking. They, they you know, both sides have their own exploration hurdles that you have to get past. But mm-hmm. there's a, quite an endowment there. So the prize is big. Right, and, and what are the hurdles? I, I mean, the jungle is intense and deep, and the, the weathering goes down 100 meters. Or, like, what what are the uh, biggest challenges getting around finding the gold? Well, certainly in the Guyana Shield. I mean, you mentioned your early days looking at the jungle. There's there's still a lot of jungle there in Suriname. It's very hot. It's deep weathering. Uh, there's not a lot of fresh geology to work with. So your your ge- you know your exploration team and your geologists are really challenged to. Uh, you know, eke out these uh, these discoveries. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the upsides of having a terrain like that, though, is that there remains a lot to be discovered because of the difficulty in doing it. So, you know, if you're motivated and put the effort in, you're going to be successful. There's no doubt about it. But it's it's not easy work. Just one last question for the podcast here. Uh, for Gord, uh, you know, I'm Gold is taking a unique approach here with the solar power. You had a small uh, solar array... Uh, at Rosabelle, I guess it's kind of cloudy there. I'm not sure if it's the best place for solar, but this has led to a very large uh, solar array in Burkina Faso, the Essekane, a uh, very large mine. Could you just tell us about what's gone on there? Sure. So, <clears throat> yeah, in 2014, we we installed five megawatts of solar power here at Rosabelle. Um, it's gone very, very well. Um, and, you know, there is a rainy season, but there's we do generate uh, a good bit of power uh when the sun is shining and it shines a lot down here right. uh and it it really actually helped the helped the country at a time when 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 we were being asked to actually curtail production in order to to shave the peak off uh, in the middle of the day so when the solar plant came up that allowed us to to uh to really uh r- run through that exercise with mm-hmm. no effect on production we looked at Essekin uh, in the Sahel, uh, lots of sunshine for sure, and explored the opportunity to to work with a, a power company out of France. So they've just finished the installation. They had the official opening late last week. Uh, I was there on the weekend, and and we're already starting to feed power. They're 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 in the midst midst of ramping it up. 
so this, it's a 15-megawatt uh, plant, and uh, we'll supplement. Our, we, we, we're not on the grid up there, so we have to burn heavy fuel oil uh, in a thermal plant to generate our power. So uh, it's our hope and our, our, our intention that we'll be able to, sh- at least during the day, shut down a, a couple of those units and and you know supply the supply the operation off the solar power it's it's a neat thing to do and and continue to look at it we're we're looking uh again had a conversation a couple of days ago here at Rosabelle again looking at other green power opportunities to for us to work for in the future as we've now extended the life uh for Rosabelle uh it gives us the opportunity to sort of think uh, a little bit differently about about how we run and and what we can do, it's 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 quite uh, invigorating, quite rewarding, and it's it's neat to, you know, neat to make power out of the sky. I'll tell you. Right. Yeah. Congratulations on the opening there. Uh, I guess that wraps up our por- portion of the uh, podcast. Thanks for joining us, gentlemen. No problem. Thank you. And that's our show for this week. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll have our uh, holiday break here in Canada over this weekend, and then we'll be back at it next week. See you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.